And as you're doing that, we're going to transition into Mark chapter 11. Yes, I did not trip on my words. It did not say Matthew. I said Mark. I I actually was reading this week, and I discovered there's another gospel that comes after Matthew. I'm kidding. I knew it was there. Really, I did. So uh, this morning, we're going to take some time. um, uh, Well, next week, we'll jump back into Matthew. We'll actually be in Matthew 13, then talking about what Jesus gives us, these amazing things called parables to explain the concept of the kingdom of God and how important that is for us to understand individually and as a church. But this morning, I had planned a number of weeks ago that I, I knew that we needed to to pause in between kind of the mini-series. We talked about mission up until just before Haiti, and then, then we're going to transition talking about God's kingdom and, again, this whole concept of being a disciple and following Jesus. I know we needed to kind of pause for a moment and and address for us as a church family the reality of where we are right now in terms of the process that God's leading us through. And so this morning I want to talk about everybody's favorite topic, change. Now, for most people, when you say the word change, there's a little bit of excitement in all of us. Like, yeah, that would be really cool. Something different, something new, something not like what it used to be, but something that maybe is a little bit unknown and a little uncharted, and it would be really exciting. And that's kind of what stirs in us. Now, there's for others of us, it's like change. I don't want anything to change. I want this just to be the same as it's always been. I want my life to be the same. I want to eat the same thing at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You know, I want the same car, the same house. Those are, those are you. We'll pray for you, okay? But that's, and, and, and change is like the last thing that you and I want to do. But as we've been on this journey as a church family and discovering what God is shaping us to be, knowing that the process of the building isn't really about the building, and it's not about changing our address from Shasta to Runway. It's about something bigger that God is doing in us. And I've said this before, and we need to really think about what this means. God is not remodeling new hope. He's recreating us. And there's a huge difference between the two. It means that God is not bringing an addition or a little modification, or he's putting some different color paint on the walls. He's taking us down to the foundation of who we are as followers of Jesus and who we are as a church. And then he's recreating and rebuilding who we are. And that means for that to happen, it takes a lot longer than we want it to. And it goes a lot deeper than we expect it to. We are in the middle and will continue to be for a very long time in the middle of a season of deep and profound change in our church. And some, the reason I'm taking this time is because there's that tendency. It's like, okay, we're in a season of change. We've got a new pastor. He's a little weird. They do things a little bit differently. Pastor John's here to get his agenda going. I know we've had lots of pastors in our past, and he's going to do his thing, and we'll do his thing while he's here and do the next thing when the next person comes. And that's kind of the anticipation. And then when we're in change, we're like, okay, we're done with change. And usually what that means is, can we go back to what we used to be? Can we go back to normal? There is no more normal. There isn't going back because God is in the process of recreating us. And when you're recreated, you don't go back to what you used to be. There may be some similarities to your history, but you certainly don't look anything like you used to. That's why when it comes to individuals, that's why Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians, when when we are saved and we are filled by the Spirit, we are a new creation, not a remodel, but a new creation. And that's true for us as a church family. So I wanted to take some time to talk about change this morning. And I want to do that by looking at Mark chapter 11. We'll look at verse 15 through 19. Because there's a story that Jesus, when he came into the temple and encountered what he saw and what had transpired, in a very short period of time, made some drastic changes that were challenges for people that were there. 
And I think there's a lot that we can glean from his encounter in the temple and how we function as believers and as people a part of New Hope today that we need to learn from. So if you have your Bibles, let me read, starting in verse 15 of Mark 11, I'll read to verse 19. Excuse me. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts, and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it into a den of robbers." The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. So looking at this brief little story, I want to unpack it together because it says volumes about change and how you and I should embrace change. And the first thing I want to look at, you can look at the first part of verse 15 or verse 18, is our response to change. Whether you and I want to admit it or not, we respond to change very similarly to how the religious leaders responded to the change that Jesus is bringing. And we need to be careful in the way that we respond because the change that God is bringing is something that he wants. It's his purpose. It's his agenda. It's what he wants for our lives and what he wants for our church. The first thing, look at the first part of verse 18. The first response that you and I have a tendency to make towards change is we reject it. So it says, The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. The word kill literally means destroy. They weren't looking just to, they would eventually try to and successfully kill Jesus on the cross. We know that that's what their ultimate goal was. But they wanted to destroy him in the process. They wanted to destroy his reputation. They wanted to make people think twice about Jesus. They didn't like what he's doing. And so we can sum up from their reaction that the change that Jesus was bringing, they were rejecting. They weren't accepting it. They weren't on board. They weren't on the bandwagon of Jesus. They were going the other direction. They were reacting strongly against it. And many times in our lives, that's the the position we take when it comes to change. Something happens in our life or somebody brings change, and our first reaction is, no, it's not good. I like the way it is. I like the way it used to be. I don't want anything changed. I want it to stay the way it is. And so we just reject it and we write it off. And as we know, the religious leaders, they would at even one point accuse Jesus of being filled by Satan. Anything they could do to keep the status quo, anything they could do to avoid change, they were doing it. But Jesus was bringing change. And we have to be careful because many times we don't realize the agendas that we bring to the table when it comes to following Jesus and and it comes to church. And we always say, yeah, I want change. And then when the one thing that you don't want to change changes, then you think, oh, wow, another miss in the boat. You know, you can change all that, but you can't change this. There's only one unchanging thing, only one unchanging person. It's God. Everything else changes. He's the only constant. We sang about it this morning. But understanding that, that you and I have, usually many of us have that reaction. Oh, it's different. So if it's different, it can't be good. It's not what I'm used to. I have a good friend who pastors up in Oregon, and when he uh, stepped into the church that he's currently at, very significant church and long history and, and amazing things that God did there, but had gone through a, a season of transition and was going through some difficult times, and he knew that God had called them there to bring change in a lot of different levels. And when he came into the church, this was a sizable church, but the definition of worship for them was an organ and a piano. That was it. This is not too long ago. And then that was the extent of it. That's how they would... They had kind of gotten lost in the 60s and 70s and never recovered. So he thought, you know, I want to bring some change to our worship. But he knew early on that anything that he would try to do change was met with great resistance. People would reject it. So 
he thought through about how he would bring change because he wanted to see he wanted people to understand what you're reacting against is not the substance of the change it's just the change itself so he wanted to do introduce drums he had already gotten guitars up there which was way out there for this church so to introduce drums he set the drums up on the stage and he left them there for three weeks and nobody played them three weeks and I kid you not, he has letters and emails from people in the church from the first Sunday that the drums showed up on the platform when nobody touched them. And the complaint was, the drums were too loud. You got to take them out. We can't have drums in our, in our worship. I can't hear. My hearing aids, it's just driving them crazy. Seriously, these are the things he was getting from people. And he went back and said, nobody's touched the drums for three weeks. Because he wanted them to see what you're reacting against is the fact that there is change, not the substance of what's being changed. And that's what the religious leaders do. And that's what we do sometimes. It's change. It's different. It can't be good. I want it to stay the same. I want it to go back the way it used to be because it's comfortable and easy and familiar. But Jesus never lets us get away with that. He always brings change. When Jesus shows up, he always makes us uncomfortable. Guarantee it. You read through the Gospels. People were turned upside down. People were challenged. People were uncomfortable when Jesus showed up. Second thing, look at going on verse 18. The religious leaders also respond to change, and our response to change is fear. It says, for they feared him. This wasn't like a righteous, kind of reverent fear of God. This was a fear of, oh no, there goes the neighborhood. Here comes Jesus. He's going to mess everything up. And so we're afraid of what he's going to do. He seems to be unpredictable. He seems to be doing things that we don't want him to do. And so they were afraid of the change that he was bringing. Anybody willing to admit that you're maybe afraid of change that comes your way? We all are in some way. We're afraid. Because we're afraid of what we don't know. We're afraid of what's different. We become familiar and comfortable with what's consistent in our life. And we don't want anything to change. Unless we find ourselves in pain or suffering, we want that to change. But we find a comfortable rhythm. We don't want things to change. It's just our reaction. You know, it was really interesting last week to watch the response of people when we moved everybody to the center section. Now, most of you are like, this is fun. This is great. I'm like cramped, and there's people like sitting next to me, and I have to talk to people. And then there's others that they didn't like it at all. Seriously. I'm not trying to, I'm not pointing at anybody. No, no fingers are being pointed. There's no secret cameras recording you. But people, some people got upset last week because they didn't have their seat sad and i'm seriously it it makes me we have to take a step back and think okay if i'm upset when i can't sit in the same seat every sunday then what's wrong inside of me god forbid that i have to greet somebody i don't know some of us we love we by the way i know we have a seating chart i i see it i can almost take attendance every sunday and when we get the seating chart set down it's like yeah you know what finally got comfortable i know the names of everybody else they kind of have the same tendencies we pray about the same thing when we pray in prayer groups we greet each other with the same greeting finally got it and then he goes and changes things on me what is that all about jesus was turning tables he was offending people he was not just rearranging furniture in the temple he was he was bringing upheaval to their religious system that they established as normal and comfortable and routine, and this is what we want, and that's why they were afraid. If you and I really get to know the real Jesus in some areas of our life, he will scare us to death because he's unpredictable. See, we, we have a certain way that we like to let Jesus roll out, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but he always goes outside the box that we create for him. 
He doesn't play by our rules. He has his own rules. He brings change the way he wants to bring change. And then the third thing going on in verse 18 is our response, as was the religious leaders, is we respond in pride. Because it goes on, it says, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Just a little bit of jealousy going on there. You know, you got the, these religious leaders who have been the teachers for years, and the ones in control, the ones in power, and, and they've found a way to bore people to death with the law, and there was really no life. And, and all of a sudden, this new guy in town comes in, and suddenly people are paying attention to him. They're amazed. When he opens his mouth, it's like, whoa. He's saying things that, that they've never seemed to never hear before. He says it with a new power and authority. There's all this stuff going on. And so there's this reaction in the religious leaders like, wait a second. He's taking our position. He's taking control. He's taking the power that we've had for years. He can't do that. You and I don't have to be religious leaders to experience the same kind of pride. See, when you and I get established in a system in our life, whether it be church or normal rhythms or whatever it might be, and there's a sense of accomplishment, there's a sense of position, and we kind of know that deep down inside we enjoy it because there's a little bit of us that loves to be in control of our environment. And when something kind of upsets that, you and I react with, hey, wait a second, because we don't want to lose that position. And it happens in the church sometimes. We don't even realize we've, we've gravitated towards places of influence or position or authority. And when, when things start to change, we're not getting that same kind of position anymore. Things are shifting. Things are changing. And we're like, wait a second, wait a second. No, I, I like that position. I like that. And now, now something else is happening and other people are rising up. And God's using other people to lead people. And I don't know if I like that. What is that in us? It's pride. And pride comes up against change strongly. It says, no, no, I want it to stay the same because if it stays the same, I'm still in control, which is really an illusion, but we believe it's real. When Jesus comes, he's doing things in us that it's hard. It's not easy. It means we have to let go of things that maybe we've hung on to for such a long time. See, pride wants to keep the status quo. And at its core, pride is selfish and evil and cares nothing for other people. It's what we saw in Haiti. You know, around the world, you know, Haiti now is ranked as the poorest nation in the world. And when you go there, you'll know why. But but one of the things that people say, well, we're going to go in and we're going to fix Haiti. You know, and it's, and I mentioned this last week, it's no offense, but, you know, people come in with Christians, we should say Christians, they do, they come in with t-shirts like, hope for Haiti, saving Haiti, and then you spend a week. We saved Haiti. No, you didn't. You were there for a week. So it's like, well, that's kind of hopeless. Well, here's the thing about Haiti. The only thing that's going to transform Haiti is the power of the gospel through Jesus and his church. That's it. But the world looks at it and says, we can fix the problem. How do we fix the problem? Money will fix the problem. Four billion dollars was promised to Haiti after the earthquake. A small percentage of it ever made it to its people. The majority, you know where the majority ends up? In the government system. See, when we were there staying in the compound, we're up on the roof. You can look up on the hillside of Port-au-Prince, and that's where all the government officials live. They live in these nice, beautiful compounds, wealthy, and then you look down on all the shacks of Port-au-Prince and all the tent cities and all the things, all the poverty. And they are up there, and they love it. You think they love it? They love the status quo. They love Haiti being broken. Because when Haiti's broken, governments around the world, just like ours, pours resource into Haiti and it never gets to the people. It gets into the pockets of the wealthy politicians and they just eat it up. 
So the last thing that they would want you to do is to fix Haiti. The last thing that they want to happen is the church to rise and the gospel to take root in people's lives and the poor actually be cared for. That's the last thing. Why? Because they're in control right now. Fixing Haiti is not a monetary issue. It's the issue of the heart. The only way Haiti is going to be changed is if its leadership is changed from the inside out by Jesus. That's it. Righteous leadership, integrity, and care for people. The only way that that system is ever going to change. And you and I have to realize that our pride sometimes is just like that. We wouldn't be like the government official living up on the, on the hillside, but something in us wants to hang on, and, and hanging on means that other people may have to lose out on what God may want to do in their life. So you may be thinking, and we'll go on, why change? Why can't we just remain the same? Why can't we just be consistent? Going on, there's a few things I want to highlight. Four things out of the passage. In fact, going back to the first thing, really, if you go back to verses 1, 11, 1 through 11, I won't, I won't read that. But the, the first reason you and I need change in our church, in our lives, is because sometimes we have a tendency to customize Jesus. We make Jesus in our own image. So it's what Jews did. Remember, I, I, on Palm Sunday, we, we talked about this. But if you go back and you read the first 11 verses of Mark, or Mark 15 here in this, in this chapter, what you and I are going to discover, or Mark 11, excuse me, is that the Jews had created what Jesus was supposed to be for them. And that's why when he came in to the city on Palm Sunday, he came into this context where they were ready for him because in their minds they had the whole script laid out. Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He's ushering in the kingdom of God, which to them was the kingdom of David. He's reestablishing Israel's rule. He's going to set up a new government. He's going to get rid of the Romans. That's why they're out on the street. That's why they're laying palm fronds down. That's why they're yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then the next few verses, Jesus goes into the temple, and he's not playing by the same rules. He's challenging their religious system that puts him up as king over Israel on earth because he has a better kingdom and a greater kingdom. This is king of all things over the heavens and the earth and all of creation. But they had a hard time with that. Why? Because they had the box and Jesus wasn't staying in the box. If you and I create a box for Jesus, he will always destroy it. And the more we do that, the more we're disappointed with Jesus because we've defined him and then he doesn't work within our framework. And sometimes we have a tendency to do that. That's why, for me, I constantly go back to the Gospels. Because no matter how long I follow Jesus, I always, over time, start to customize them. I start to shave off the hard parts, the parts I don't really like, and enhance the parts that are easy. And then when I go back and start reading the Gospel, I'm like, oh my goodness, I forgot. That's the Jesus. That's the Jesus in his own words. And that's why the last 18 months in our church, we have OD'd on Jesus, which is a good thing to OD on. Because we want to go back to what is Jesus saying to us. Not what is Pastor John saying. That's why we keep going back to the Gospels and keep looking at Jesus' words. Because that is not a challenge only to our church. It's a challenge to us as individuals. How do we respond to Jesus and what he says in our life? And so you and I have to realize that we have to break outside of the customization that we create. And let Jesus define himself. It's kind of like photoshopping Jesus. You know... Sorry to break it to you, but the majority of photos you look at in magazines are not real. I know that's earth-shattering for some of us. They've been modified. The blemishes have been taken away, and certain things have been enhanced while other things are downplayed. Why? So that it looks like, wow, this is amazing. Then if you see the real person in real life, you're like, you don't even recognize who they are. The person has been customized. They've been made to look a certain way because that's what we think we want to see. And we do that with Jesus. Hey, let me show you a picture of my football days back in University of Oregon. You guys put it up here. 
So back before I went into ministry, before God called me and I got saved, I was a middle linebacker for the University of Oregon, number 44. Anybody remember watching me play? I was awesome. I was all over the field. Nobody remembers me playing. How many believe that's really me? That's good. You, you guys, well, the head is me. Look really close. Because the body isn't even close to me. Look at this arm and look at that arm and tell me they're not the same. That is a photoshopped picture of me with a studly linebacker's body and my scrawny little head perched on top. I have a friend who's our associate pastor in Oregon who is a huge duck fan. And he thought it would be funny to make me into a duck. In fact, if you get really close on my left bicep, there is a circle with a line through it. And the letters in that circle are UCLA. So he thought just to humor me. Looks pretty impressive. When Kim saw that picture, she says, hey, where's that guy? I don't remember that guy. So wouldn't you, I, I look at that, I'm like, man, I would love to be like that. I would love until I turn like 65 and then I had to try to keep that up. But it's a convincing picture, isn't it? But it's not real. What's the picture you and I have created or painted of Jesus? Is it biblical? Is it from the Gospels? Is it the way Jesus defines himself? Or is it our creation of the Jesus that we really want? The Jews had done that. That's why it was so difficult for him. You know, it's amazing. On Palm Sunday, Jesus comes in as the most popular man in all of Jerusalem. But by Friday, what happens? It says that all, even his own disciples, turned their back on him. Became the most unpopular. Why? Because he didn't play by their rules and he didn't fit in their box. So you and I have to, we need change because we have a tendency to customize Jesus. And the second thing, verses 15 and 16. Why change? Because sometimes we forget the purpose. So let me read verse 15 and 16. It says, On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts. He began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple court. So what's going on? So Jesus walks into the temple. And the temple, you have to remember, the temple is like the pinnacle of Jewish culture. It's the center. It's their connection with God. It's the place where they can be in the presence of God. It's the place where they offer sacrifice. It's the place of worship. It's the hub of their culture. And so when Jesus walks into the hub of their culture, what he sees is not what God originally intended for the, for the temple. It was supposed to be this place where people could come and could worship. And what had happened is in the outer courts, or also known as the courts of the Gentiles, which is where non-Jews were allowed to enter the temple. That's as far as they could go. They couldn't go in any further. They could come in that area, and that was their place of worship. And what had the Jews done to it? They had taken that outer court, and they had turned it into a place of business. So pilgrims would come from long distances to come to the temple to worship, to sacrifice. And normally you could buy on your way or outside the temple, you could purchase. But then they just made it more convenient. You could buy sacrifices inside the temple now. And we can just squeeze out the outer courts and we can make room for for merchants to come in and make money. And from what, what we can pick up historically is that many of the priests that were working at the temple were actually getting kickbacks from the merchants. So they were making a profit off of sacrifice, off of worship. And so they were doing this, and so Jesus comes into this setting, and he sees what's going on, and he sees what's happening. In fact, what had happened, they had become so, the temple had become so commonplace to the Jews that they literally, when it says in verse 16 that Jesus would not allow anyone to carry merchandise to the temple courts, they were using the temple courts as a shortcut to get to the Mount of Olives so they could sell their product. 
So they would be passing through, just passing. It's like if we open the doors of the church and we're like, hey, I'm just passing through. I don't want to come to church today. I got to go sell my product. And just passing through. So Jesus stops people from passing through and he starts throwing tables all over the place because he's making a profound statement. This is not what the temple was meant for. It's lost its purpose. You've lost the focus. And at different levels in our own lives and in our own church, we have to take a step back and say, God, have we lost our purpose? Have we lost the purpose of why you originally started this thing called the church, birth the church, so that people could be impacted and people could be reconciled back to God through Jesus? All those kinds of things. Somehow we take the church and we repurpose it for our purposes, not God's. And we have to be really careful because all of us have an agenda of what we think church should be. If I asked you right now what the purpose of the church is, I guarantee we'd get 100 different answers. We all have our idea. And that's, that's, you and I have to be careful because if you are someone who knows Jesus, this is what happens to all of us. If you're visiting a church or maybe you're here for the first time or you walk into church, there is this cultural consumeristic mindset that settles in and we ask the same question, what's in it for me? As a Christian, that's what we ask, what's in it for me? And if you and I truly have embraced Jesus, we can't ask that question anymore. Because we know that we've been saved not so that we could sit and be comfortable and do just kind of receive all the time. We've been saved because there's a world that needs to be reconciled back to God through Jesus. That's one of the reasons that we're saved. For good works that God purposed for us. God is working in us. But you and I have to come to grips with, what do I think the church is supposed to be? And when we get off just a little bit, the church loses its focus and the church becomes something it was never intended to be. I don't know what it would look like, but if Jesus walked in here this morning, how would he react? I can't tell you for sure. I'd hope he wouldn't start overturning chairs and throwing things around. He might tell people to change their seats. That might get a little upsetting. I don't know. It's like this, uh, I can't remember, it was some home improvement show, some crazy thing where people take things that aren't meant for houses and tournament houses. There's this guy in South America who got an airplane, he bought a 737, and he gutted it out, and he propped it up in a tree and built his house inside of it. It was pretty cool. I mean, when you looked inside of it, I mean, he literally had to get rid of everything inside, but he had rooms and all kind of stuff. But from the outside, you look at it, it's just this, it's the engines, the wing, the fuselage, everything is right there, but it's just put up in this tree, and that's where he lives. It's a great home, but can it fly? No. It doesn't have any of the mechanisms that make it fly. It has the appearance of an airplane, but internally it's a house. So that, that, that plane has, no, has forfeited its ability to fly because now it's become a house. The same thing is on the outside looking at church. It looks great. What is the church supposed to do? It's supposed to have services. It's supposed to worship. It's supposed to have great, great music. It's supposed to have programs to take care of everybody's needs. It's supposed to have a really good location. It's supposed to have a service schedule that doesn't go too long. It's supposed to have air conditioning and parking because we don't want to offend people. We want people to be comfortable. That's all the definition that we in the church and even the culture gives. But is that the definition that Jesus gives? I don't think so. Because that definition is what? self-centered. It's about me. It's about what what I want. It's about what I think I need and what's comfortable and what's easy for me. It's not about the world. And the purpose of the church at its core is that we are God's people. We are his body. We are saved and set aside for a purpose by him to help the world understand that it's living apart from God and that the only hope that the world has is to be reconciled back to God through Jesus. That's it. 
And if we ever lose that as our center, as our, our true north, as the thing that we draw our bearing from, then we become like an airplane that sits in a tree but can never fly. And that's why we have to go through change, because it's easy for us to default back to that way. And then the third thing, the third thing about change and why we need it is because sometimes we forget about others. So Jesus says in verse 17, it says, He taught them, He said, it is, not, is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? He's quoting from Isaiah 56, 7. See, the temple was supposed to not just be for the Jews. The temple was supposed to be for all nations. That's why they had the outer courts. They had the, the court of the Gentiles. So non-Jews could come and still worship. That's why in John 4, when Jesus was talking to the woman, well, who was a Samaritan, she understood the concept of worship. Why? Because the temple was supposed to be a place where they could all go to worship even non-Jews. And somehow, because of money and convenience and profit, the place where the world was supposed to worship God got squeezed out. It got used as a business place instead of being a place of worship. Why? Because they had somehow forgotten that the temple was not just for the Jews. The temple was the place for the world to come and to worship God. And sometimes you and I have a tendency to forget probably heard it said the church is is one organization that does not exist for itself the moment the church exists for itself is the moment that the church will cease to exist we don't exist for ourselves but sometimes we think we do we exist what for god's purpose in the world we have to reorient our minds to that and that means the church is the body is people the church is not the pastor the church is not the building the church is not the staff it's us So that means we have to be willing to change as individuals, and we'll talk about that in a moment. We have to think differently about church and think differently about our life so that we start to think through, how am I supposed to live my life in a way that I'm following Jesus? The decisions that I make every single day, how am I taking into consideration other people in light of God's purpose? In every aspect. And Coming back from Haiti, I know Tim said it earlier, Haiti overload, and I apologize, but I don't apologize. Because every, if you've ever traveled outside the country and you see God doing work amazingly beyond what you can imagine on cinder blocks and two-by-fours in a little church with no windows or doors, you start to realize, wow, maybe I need to reconsider what we're doing in the United States. So Kim and I had numerous times, and this is one another season in our life where we start pairing back again, start asking the question, what do I not need? And we start asking that as a church. Great example. This week we had a, a meeting with our architect general contractor about the building. And he's a great guy and he's working with us, but he presented an addition to our budget. He wanted to do some really amazing things with the lobby area and some things in the sanctuary. And it was, it was he presented to us and it was beautiful, but it was going to tack on another $85,000. And so I was sitting there just kind of squirming and I know I'm going to follow up with him. And I walked away and I was praying and I said to Kim, like, are you kidding me? $85,000 for a lobby? And then John Looney and I were talking this morning. I love John just brings it back to him. He goes, $85,000. We could build eight churches in Haiti for that lobby. This week, Kim and I, we've done child, with the kids, we've done child sponsorship for a long time. We've taken a break for a little while. We're going to probably re-engage with Connect too. But we're considering how do we cut back? I'm looking at TV. I love sports. Anybody want to admit, I'm a sports and news junkie. That's me. If I had ESPN and a news station, I'd be happy. 
And I start looking, and I'm thinking, okay, we can arrange it. I can still do everything. Every time I turn, I'm like, it's going to cost more money. Right now I'm paying as, as cheap as I can get for our household. It's like 75 bucks. And so I'm thinking, oh, man, I don't know if I can live without ESPN. And then it hit me. Kim and I were talking. 75 bucks, that's like almost two and a half orphans. Put it in perspective. I'm thinking, okay, ESPN or feed a child. Mm, I don't know. What do you think? HGTV or put clothes on an orphan's body? What's the comparison? That's the kind of questions you and I have to ask ourselves. That's the questions. Am, and in my life, am I considering other people or have I done like the Jews in this passage? Have I squeezed them out of the equation for my comfort and my convenience? You and I have to change. And then the final thing about change, and then I'll conclude with, with a few points and the worship team will join us again for communion. The fourth reason of why we need to change is because sometimes we become comfortable in our own sin. So going on in verse 17, it says he taught them, he said, it's written, it's written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And he says, but you have made it a den of robbers. Just, I want you just to go back in time for a minute. Stick yourself in the temple. It's, in any, it's, just, it's just your average day and the temple business is going on and then this crazy guy shows up and starts turning things upside down. They were in a rhythm that this was normal. In fact, this was okay. Making a profit off of pilgrims and taking some off the top and squeezing the Gentiles out of their court was acceptable to the Jews. To God, it was sin. They'd become so familiar with their own rhythm of sin that it just was normal and acceptable. And sometimes you and I have to be snapped out of the reality and the rhythms of our life to say, you know what, it's become okay to me, but is it really okay with God? Is this the rhythm of life that God wants me to live in, or do I need to take a step back and say, you know, I've gotten too comfortable? I've gotten too comfortable with my own compromises and my own sin. I'm not even asking the Holy Spirit anymore, is this right or wrong? Because maybe I don't really want to hear. See, the definition of sin, the Greek term for the definition of sin is, it's an archery term. It's harmartia, which means it's aiming for a target and shooting and missing. It's missing the mark. And that's what sin is. And we can sin even with good intentions. Just like you can draw back an arrow with a bow and you can aim as best you can to hit the target. And if you miss it, you sin. We can do that. And even some of the things that maybe in the rhythm of our life or even within the church, we say, those are good things. But are they the things that God wants for us? Or do they miss the mark and the purpose of what he set out for our lives in our church? We have to constantly ask that question and take a step back and say, God, is this true? And for some of us, we've become so familiar with our own sin because we just do it over and over and over again. And the Holy Spirit's saying, listen, there's a different way. People got rocked that day when Jesus went into the temple. Yeah, the religious leaders got offended. But I'm convinced there's some people that probably took a step back and said, wow, have we been missing it? Have we been doing something that we thought was right and actually it was wrong? The Holy Spirit helps us to understand that. Three things of of embracing change and what it requires that I want to close with. This is where we are as individuals and as a church and what it's going to require of us to truly embrace the change that God is bringing in our lives and in our church. The first one is this. You and I have to be willing to forget the past. And what I mean by that is you and I, on both sides, forget the success and the failure of the past, individually and as a church. If we can't get past what used to be, 
both positive and negative, we can never get far forward with what God's doing. We can never get to the future. We can't. That's why Paul wrote this in Philippians 3, verses 13 and 14. Remember Paul. Remember, Paul was like the best and the worst, but he was the best at everything he did. He was a really good sinner. He was a really good Pharisee. And he, was, he says that, and he recites that early on in, the, in this chapter, in, in, in chapter 3. But then he gets to verse 13, and he says, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, I for, forgetting what is behind and, and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul says, listen, the only thing is valuable is the salvation of being reconciled to God through Jesus. And that is my focus. I forget what's behind. I forget my failure. I forget my successes. And I move forward. And for us as individuals and for us as a church, moving from, from Shasta way to runway is not just about a location change. It's about an identity change. It's about re- God recreating us. And that means for some of us, it is letting the failures of our church in the past die, as well as the successes of our church's history. For some of us, we're living in one of the two extremes. Some of us, oh man, wouldn't it be great to go back to when Sunrise was in its heyday? By the way, New Hope used to be called Sunrise. Oh man, remember when there was 2,500 people in this building? Remember when we had like four services? And by the way, people I've heard estimates, oh, the church was like 8,000 people. It's 2,500, which is still pretty incredible. Think, oh man, if we could just go back. There is no going back. You and I can't recreate the past. God can recreate the future. That's where we're moving. That's where we're going. Forgetting the success and the failure. And in these individuals, there's some of us that need to move beyond the cloud of our success and the cloud of our failure to move forward into what God wants us to be, but we're stuck. We're stuck living in failure. We're stuck living in success and we don't see the future of what God is leading us into. The second thing is embracing change requires remaining faithful. Change is always longer than you want it to be. It's never shorter, at least in my experience. It'll always go beyond what you want to do. We're like, okay, I'm done now, God. Okay, the change is done, but it's not. That means you and I have to be in this for the long haul. There's a tendency in, in the church community to hop on and off the bandwagon of church. We do it all the time. This is the third church that I've pastored. I've, I've not pastored as long as some, but I've pastored long enough to see the rhythms in people's lives. And I don't say this out of any insecurity or saying, oh, don't leave, because if someone decides to leave New Hope, and their God's calling them somewhere, that's great. If they decided to leave New Hope because they don't like anything, ultimately that's their responsibility. But here's the bottom line. When we jump off the bandwagon because we don't like the change or we don't like the process of change or we don't get our needs met, whatever the reason is, and we go somewhere else for a fresh start, here's the tragedy. The majority of people who do that end up repeating the same cycle they did at their last church. I've seen it over and over and over again. Why? Because there's something undone in you. Now, I'm not talking about if there's sin or lack of integrity or there's immoral leadership. I'm not talking about that kind of a transition. I'm talking about, I just don't like this. I don't like being uncomfortable. I, don't, I want this program. They don't have that program. And whatever the reasoning is underneath the surface, you and I have to ask the question, why am I jumping off the bandwagon? 
is this about Jesus or is this about the church? If it's about Jesus, then we're far less to jump off the bandwagon. Because guess what? When you show up at another church, guess who's there too? Jesus, and he knows your stuff. Even though you thought you left it at the other church, he goes, I know who you are. I know what's going on in your life. And he won't let you lie. He won't let it lie. He'll keep pursuing you because he wants to transform your life. It takes longer than you want it to. I think it was two or three summers ago, I did P90X. Anybody insane enough to try that? I thought, man, I'm going to get in really good shape. I'm going to look like the duck football player. You know, I'm going to go after that. But for me, it wasn't P90X, it was P45X. Well, actually, probably you can take the X out. It was more like P45. Because I did it for 45 days. And I noticed changes in my body and was working hard and sweating a lot. And then this thing called vacation showed up on my calendar. And I was gone for a week or two, wasn't working out. And I thought, oh, I'll just jump right back in. Right when I get back from vacation, I'll just go back. And the first day back from vacation, I'm like, oh, I, I can wait. I, you know, I just... If vacation was rough, I need to rest a day, you know. And the second day comes, oh, I don't need to do it third day. And before you know it, a week goes by, and I never went back to it. Because I, started, I kept rehearsing in my mind, oh, man, that was really hard. Why did I subject myself to that? Why did I get up early in the morning? Why did I sweat? Why did I work so hard? I don't need that. And so I just went back to the normal rhythm of life. There's a reason it was called P90X. Because the person who put it together realized if you can do something for 90 days, you've established a new pattern in your life. 45 doesn't work. But how many of us jump off the bandwagon around 45 or 50 or 60 or whatever, what God's doing in our life because, oh, it's too hard. And never allow him to complete what he's doing in us. And then the final thing, the final thing that change requires of you and I is personal change personally embracing change in our life not personally or not embracing change for new hope but change in our own personal walk with jesus because we the church is people we will only change as much as we will change individually we can't be changed as a church if we're not transformed as individual people because the church is people and that means that you and i have to seriously consider what is going on in our life and the change that god wants to bring in us and not be content with the status quo and just kind of letting it happen. And, but thinking, God, what are you wanting to do in me? What are you wanting to change in me? What, what needs to be recreated? Not remodeled or modified. But what needs to be recreated in me about who you are. About what it looks to follow, like to follow you. And redefine who I am and, and embracing that. See, because if you and I are willing to do that, then our church will change. And so, you know, it's not enough to attend a church that's going through change. You know, one of the things that, that, that we have a tendency to do is we gravitate towards whatever the church is doing and say, yeah, that's great, and, and, and I want to be a part of that. But really what we want to do is we want to come and be a part of the church by attending and let everybody else get in the game, and we just applaud them and say, yeah, I'm a part of that church, and we're doing this. But honestly, deep down inside, we're not doing it. Other people are doing it. But the challenge for us is someday when we stand before Jesus, he's going to look at the list and he's going to say, oh, what, what church did you go to? No, it's not on the list. So, oh, you went to New Hope. That was the church that went through that long period of change. That was a rough one. I'm glad you made it. He's not going to care what church you went to. He isn't. He's going to look at your life and say, this is what I gave you. Last week we heard, here's the clear view of the cross I gave you. He's going to say, 
Here's the redemptive purpose I laid out in your life. Here's how I constantly hounded you and pursued you your entire life to get your attention that you needed to be reconciled back to God through me so that you could live a life, a selfless life, that would embrace the world and others would come become reconciled through me back to God. That's what he's going to look at us and say, so what did you do with your life? And you can't say, hey, well, I went to a church that did this. I went to the church that changed. No, he's going to look inside. He's going to say, what happened to you personally? And that's when you I have to come to grips with. Remember, if you're here last week, remind, let me remind you. Because the tendency is like, oh man, I need to do more. Pastor John's beating me up. I got to go out and do more, do more, do more. Otherwise, Jesus doesn't love me. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what the Bible says. But if you and I have a struggle with caring for the poor, if you and I have a struggle embracing change and letting God transform us, the question is to take a step back and say, what is deficient in my understanding of who Jesus is? That's the problem. Not to do more, because the doing comes a result of the transformation in our heart to do these things because we want to, not because we have to, in order to justify ourselves before God. So we surrender to God and we allow Him to transform us. Let me ask the worship team if they would come and join me. We're going to conclude here in just a little bit with communion, but I, I wanted to close with something that's very important, I think, about where we find ourselves as, as a church and how, our response to that. One of the things that I have strived to do, and I know I'm far from perfect, is in every context I come to and try to follow Jesus, is I try to check my agenda at the door. Same thing. When, we came, when, we went, when Kim and I moved to Newburgh, we made that commitment. Checking my agenda at the door, we're going to discover what is God doing in the community, what is God doing in the church, what is God doing from the scriptures, what, what is he saying to us, and out of that emerges who we're supposed to be. Same thing applies here at New Hope. That's what we've been trying to strive to do. And I don't come in, I don't have some, you know, secret, like, playbook that I pull out of my desk and say, oh, wow, we're right on schedule. I don't have that. I'm trying to say, God, what do you want us to be? What is it supposed to look like? And as I keep going back to the scriptures, it keeps bringing change and it keeps challenging. And this is so important because we're at a very important season in the life of our church. There's a decision all of us have to make in moving forward, and that is that am I going to embrace the change that God is bringing? Because it's not going to be easy. It hasn't been easy. And our history, just like God the way he always seems to do it, mirrors Israel's history. And if you recall, when Israel was stuck in slavery for 400, over 400 years, and they cried out to God, free us. Free us from the Egyptians. And what does it say? God moved on their behalf. God heard their cry, and he called Moses. And you know the story of Moses. Moses comes, and he leads Israel out of Egypt and stands before the Red Sea and parts the sea, and God leads them across on dry land. Just amazing stories. And then, then what God had made clear through their history was, listen, I, I'm going to bring you to a land not so that you can be wealthy for your own benefit, but so that I can bless you and through you I can bless the world. That's what God had always chosen Israel to do that, not so they could be like the tops, top in the world. So God's going to give them a land and he leads them to the threshold land and then if you know the story, they send in 12 spies to go check out this land that God's giving them. He's already told them, I'm giving you this land. So they go in and they look around, and as you know the story, can you imagine the 12, like, we're going in, we're scouting it out, we're checking it out. There's a sense of excitement, and they go in, and they're looking. And then when they come back, that those 12 that were so excited, now there's only two that are excited. Because 10 of them come back, and what do they say? 
He said, oh, no, no, you can't do this. It's too hard. They have cities that are fortified. They're well-armed. They have people that are giants. I mean, they're way bigger than us. There's no way we could defeat them. And if we move forward, we're going to get slaughtered. We, we can't do this. And then you have Joshua and Caleb who have the same experience. They see the same stuff, and they come back, and they give a completely different report. What does Caleb say? We can do this. We can do this because Caleb saw God's power through them, the land that God had given them. Therefore, he had the faith to believe, yeah, we can do this. And if you read that story, it's crazy. Within one chapter, they go from the, the threshold of the promised land to just a few verses later, they want to stone Caleb and Joshua. They want to kill them because they're the ones that actually believe that God can bring this amazing transformation for his people and bring them to the place he wants them to be. You and I are all the spies, and we have a choice to make. Do I believe God can bring the change? Am I willing to step into whatever it's going to take for that change to happen in my life and in our church? Or am I going to be the naysayer that says, oh, we can't do this. And what we're saying when we can't do this is, let's go back to Egypt. Remember, we at least we had three squares a day. You know, we had somewhat clothing. We had a roof over our head, but I don't know. This is too much of a risk. See, God's calling us to be like Joshua and Caleb to say, God, you can do this. Not only, look look at what God has done in a year and a half. We're buying a building. And I didn't even want to buy a building, just to be honest with you. I didn't. But God opened the door and said, yeah, this is what the church needs to do because it's going to make us be in a financially healthy situation so we can invest in mission. God is doing amazing things, but you and I have to have the faith and the courage to stay on course, remain faithful, and let God complete his work in us as individuals and us as a church. So in a moment, as we sing together, you're going to have a chance to go to the four stations around the sanctuary. Communion set up there. It's the cup and it's the bread. It's juice and a cracker. We know that in the physical reality. But it's a symbol of something so much greater. It's the symbol of Jesus' death on the cross for you and I. His ultimate payment for our sin. And what it provides for you and I is the one thing that all of us need to embrace change. It's called repentance. It's a change. Repentance is a turning from the way I used to live, the way I used to think, the way I used to act, away from that. Because we knew it was wrong. It wasn't the way I was supposed to go towards the way that God wants me to live. It's this shifting And the only way that you and I have the possibility of doing that is because Jesus' death on the cross pays for the brokenness and the sin and the failure and missing the mark that we turn from so that we can embrace the future of what he has for us and who he wants us to be. So what I'm going to ask you to do when you get to the table and you get those elements that you find just a moment by yourself and look at your life and ask the Lord, what are the things that I need to turn from? What are the things that I need to repent for? What are the things that I need to think differently about? Holy Spirit, give me your mind so that I see things clearly so as I turn away from these things, I can embrace the things that you want me to embrace. The one thing that's important when you come to the table is that you know Jesus because this is something that you can only really honor what he did if you really know him. If you don't know him, that's okay. I would love to talk to you after service about what that means. They will be the greatest decision and commitment you will ever make in your life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to these last few moments of our gathering, as we we receive these elements, we're reminded that we have the ability to turn from the way we used to live, to turn from the way we think about ourselves, to turn from the way we think about you, to turn from the way that we think about church. 
to truly embrace who you want us to be as individuals, as followers of you, as disciples, and ultimately of the church that you want us to be. Lord Jesus, help us to embrace the change that you're bringing so that we can ultimately care for people so that they might be reconciled back to you. We thank you, Jesus, in your name.